Hello, and welcome to Stump, Death and Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary, and this is part two of Spreadsheet Shenanigans, though it's really about modeling. So today, I'm actually looking mostly at a modeling fiasco at GE, and I'm going to be taking clips from a podcast from the Society of Actuaries from earlier this year. Now, so obviously, I can only use so much of their podcast. It's their production, obviously, and I'm going to provide a link to the full podcast. They do give a timeline of how did GE go from being an energy company making light bulbs to basically a finance company financial products company that's kind of odd but also because the society of actuaries podcasts are primarily geared towards actuaries there is an assumption that the audience understands certain terms and certain effects so i am going to explain a little you know give a little bit of an introduction in terms of what are they talking about and then uh you know what's involved in the screw up and i think there was also something of mm, yeah there's excuse making in terms of what really went wrong because it really isn't a spreadsheet mix up and when in my experience most spreadsheet errors per se aren't really the spreadsheet's fault um, but we'll get into that in a moment so the podcast involves Dave Dillon and Paul Conlon, and most of the talking is Paul Conlon, reviewing a book called Power Failure, which is how it all went wrong for General Electric, or really GE, because they stopped being essentially a power company or electricity or, you know, light bulb company and got into financial products in a big way, in particular, long-term care insurance. And long-term care insurance is a product, as you can imagine, which is very long-term in the way it works. And long-term care insurance has kind of run into trouble in many ways. Now, so I need to be careful because this does intersect with my day job. And a lot of people mention, oh, what's your day job? Um, so I work at Conning Insurance Research, which is based out of Hartford, Connecticut. And what we do in this insurance, conning insurance research, is we cover the insurance sector. Now, it's primarily the U.S. insurance uh, sector. However, you know, the U.S. insurance market is the largest insurance market. And um, so that covers a lot. We do some international coverage for things such as mergers and acquisitions and reinsurance, which have an international flavor. But, you know, the uh, U.S. market really does take up enough space on its own. I cover life insurance and reinsurance, investments that insurers get into, solvency regulations, all sorts of regulatory and insurance technology concerns. So we do cover life, um, sorry, long-term care insurance and disability insurance and things such as that. So what I'm going to try to stick to is just trying to explain 
how the products work and not really get into the kinds of things my company covers, which is we look at the trends of the business and how these companies financially perform. We look at the financials, we do forecasts, uh, you know, we look at product trends and that kind of thing. We also do consulting for indiv individual insurers as well as investors, other interested parties that are interested in this kind of expertise. In any case, long-term care insurance really has become a niche product because of how difficult it has been to come up with something that is affordable and is priced well in that they can actually deliver on the promises made. And so let me explain what the difficulty is because there's other long-term insurance, as it were, you know, long-term promises made in insurance that insurers have not had a problem with, such as life insurance. Life insurance is fairly simple. You pay premiums, eventually you die, and then the beneficiaries get a certain pre-arranged amount of money and there lies the problem with long-term care insurance because with long-term care insurance it can take a variety of forms and so there's this complexity you're paying certain premiums now over you know decades you get old perhaps you need to go to a long-term care facility say a nursing home um, but, you know, services may change over time. People get in-home care and usually do prefer in-home care if they can get it. Well, does your policy cover that kind of service? So that's the first issue. Then the next issue is how much money will this insurance pay? Uh, so is it a sliding scale? Is it a predetermined amount? And is it capped? the amount, it, is it cap the amount? Is it inflation adjusted? Because that's the other issue. Uh, these services, of course, go along with healthcare inflation. So that, those have been the difficulties in this arena. The other difficulty in this arena with regards to long-term care insurance is that this product was priced in a way that we call lapse supported. There's a variety of long-term insurance products, and that's not just long-term care, but just products where we're expecting people to be paying premiums for a long time, and then they may or may not get a benefit eventually. Uh, a lapse-supported product is one in which someone is paying premiums, and then they lapse the policy, meaning they stop paying premiums and therefore are no longer covered. What that means, of course, is that, uh, they just paid a whole bunch of premiums are not going to get a benefit in the future. And that means the reserves, and this is what we're about to hear about, because I'm just about to cut over to the clip of Paul Conlon explaining what happened in 2018 to GE with this long-term care business. Because I have to explain what kind of happened. There was good long-term care business and bad long-term care business, or so they thought it was kind of divided up into these two blocks of business. There was a split made. It went into different companies like Genworth and Employers Re. 
And uh, so then they had designated, this is the good block, this is the bad block. And when you have lapses, the reserves for those policies are released. And what we mean by reserves, that's money that is set aside that's intended to cover the promises made. Okay, and so this is true for any insurance. There will be reserves. Now, there may be different kinds of reserves, claims reserves, policy reserves. I don't want to get into all the different kinds of reserves. The whole point of reserves for insurance is there's a nice big pile of money that the insurers are required to hold that is supposed to be there, you know, think in terms of the amount of assets that pension plans have to hold that are going to pay for future benefits. Those reserves are sitting there that are going to pay for future benefits. However, if the policy is no longer there because the person lapsed the policy, you can let those reserves go. Okay, so this is basic actuarial and insurance knowledge. Anyone who works in insurance needs to know about this. You build up reserves over the life of the policy. If somebody lapses, then you can release, you know, release the reserves. Or in the case of life insurance, if somebody dies, that's the point at which the reserves backing that policy are released and it goes into paying the benefits. So those are the reserves. Um, so there was one more little twiddle to this and that was that there were two kind of blocks of business the good business and the bad business so the bad business had bad experience and they knew it and it had higher reserves than the good business which supposedly had good experience so let me switch over to the recording of paul talking about what happened in 2018 and this was the part three of the story so if you want to hear what part one and part two were then you're going to have to go to the soa podcast to hear how it got to part three so in 2018 i should preface this by the way um i've been a reserve actuary for 35 years i've made plenty of mistakes it's uh, almost noon today as you and I talk. I've probably made two or three mistakes today. Um, I don't mean to point fingers at anyone, but Act 3 is where the actuaries did come in. Um, and it's an important actuarial error that's very easy to make. I've you know, had to pause and realize I almost made such a such mistake in various contexts of my career. But here's where their mistake came in. Um, the, the, the actuaries of, for the long-term care reserves at GE were aware of this good plan design, bad plan design concept. Um, and they had hard-coded a permanent relationship, a permanent relativity factor in the utilization of the so-called good LTC and bad LTC. Now, they knew the bad LTC was deteriorating, and they were reserving for that as they went. Um, that assumption was correct. But around 2017, 2018, they realized they needed to test this assumption of whether this permanent relativity was still true. And they found that the so-called good LTC plans had, in fact, deteriorated even more and were now performing the exact same as the, as the bad LTC plan designs. I'm going to cut in here for a quick moment to interrupt. Um, so... When I was talking about experience with regards to long-term care insurance, and they, he mentioned bad plan design and good plan design, 
I don't know the details. I'm just going to put that out there. He read the book. I did not read the book. Um, I did read the news stories when they had to restate the reserves and we're about to get to that part. Um, I believe this had to do with how the benefits of the long-term care insurance were defined. I think that's what he means by bad plan design and good plan design. The big thing though, was this utilization. And so when we talk about utilization rate, they may assume that the people having uh, the policies, what percent of those with the policies by age are actually going to like we call like go on claim and use the benefits. That's the utilization rate. Um, so they had an assumption, it sounded like, that the quote bad plan design would have had a higher utilization rate than the good plan design. And when you hear me saying good and bad, and you may, might be getting confused, you have to realize we're talking from the insurance company point of view. Uh, you know, what makes us lose money versus from the consumer point of view when we're talking. So you have to keep that perspective in mind. I may be misinterpreting what Paul Conlin is saying. So I'm going to cut back to him where he explains supposedly where the error comes from because I'm going to push back on what he says. And they found out that a reserve that they were estimating at $16 billion was actually a $32 billion liability. Now, I will say, um, uh, as an actuary, it is really scary, you know, when you have these spreadsheets set up. You can't tell without ins inspecting cell by cell, right, which have formulas in them and which have a uh, a hard copy, uh, you know, a hard coded value that may have gone stale on you. So you heard that 16 billion in reserves going up to 32 billion dollars in reserves. What does that mean? So actuaries will know what this means or anyone who works in insurance knows what this means. This is the balance sheet item. It just got doubled. This is something on their liabilities. It will hit. <laughs> so that's $16 billion flowing through their earnings. It's a negative $16 billion in hitting their earnings. And then Dave goes on to explain what the impact could be to credit and was to credit and all sorts of things and could have been a systemic risk in commercial paper. But I want you to have noticed what he mentioned in passing, and this is what caught my attention, was his mention of hard-coded assumptions in a spreadsheet and that you can't find it. Well, that's a lie, actually. There are actually easy ways to distinguish between a formula and hard-coded numbers in a spreadsheet. So if you're not familiar, when we say hard-coded, we just mean it's a numeral there versus a formula. So this is one of the sneakiest aspects. Actually, there's lots of sneaky aspects of spreadsheets, but why people like them is you're not looking at the code. Spreadsheets are code and people forget that. They just, yeah, it's a quote fancy calculator, but that's what code is. It's just 
fancy calculators all the way down. Um, but you're doing these calculations and all you're seeing are the results of calculations if you've got formulas there. Uh, the default way to deal with Excel or other spreadsheets is to give you the numerical results or string results if you're doing string functions or lookups or anything like that. Uh, you cannot tell if it's something that is just a value sitting there hard-coded. That means there's no formula, nothing calculated, just a value that's sitting there versus a formula. And this happens to people all the time in spreadsheets uh, that you might have a range that is supposed to be copy pasted of lookups or of formulas and you accidentally copy and paste as value just a single cell in the middle of a range. Well, you can actually detect that kind of thing. There's go to special cells and you can, and you can highlight all the cells that are formulas. You can highlight all the cells that are values, but there's also a toggle in Excel itself to toggle showing the formulas instead of the result of the formulas. People rarely do this, by the way, but it is a visual way to make it pop. And then you will actually see in a sea of formulas, you would see a hard coded number. Okay, this is visually how you could do it, but there are actually disciplines for auditing your spreadsheets if you're using spreadsheet. People know that if you're using code that you yourself built, there are ways of testing it. But there's ways of validating models as well. It has nothing to do with a particular input or parameter being hard-coded per se, they just never tested their model. And when they finally got around to testing it 14 years later, they realized how far off it was. And the issue is they never tested it. They never tested how good it was. And here is the other question you have business that's worth tens of billions of dollars already and you're modeling it in a spreadsheet. Excuse me. And you obviously don't have any good model controls. It's not so much that it's done in a spreadsheet. It's that you had no real controls. So now here we go to <laughs> the actuarial standards portion of this podcast and this is ASOP 56. Um, again, the ASOP's actuarial standards of practice are from the actuarial standards board. This is for the United States. For all of the major actuarial organizations, they all have their version of actuarial standards of various sorts. The UK has them, I know, and I've looked at some of them. But you know what? I like the American ones. I think ours are pretty good. And ASOP 56 is relatively new, which is kind of a shame because, of course, actuaries have been modeling for a very long time. And ASOP 56 was not in effect in 2018. However, you know, uh, the other aspect is there's something called US GAAP, 
that's generally accepted accounting principles. And one of our problems with GAAP is how often we actually have to check our assumptions in setting these reserves, whether it's long-term care insurance or life insurance or that kind of thing. There recently was an update to US GAAP called the Long Duration Targeted Improvements. Uh, one of the old-fashioned approaches to GAAP was that you could set it and forget it, um, but you might have some solvency tests and check that the reserves are sufficient for cash flow testing, uh, but the problem was you, it was just too easy to let the valuation assumptions go stale. And that this is for life insurance specifically where this was an issue that the valuation assumptions were set when the policy was bought when it was issued and of course these policies last for decades usually and so you can kind of see how this might lead to some problems especially you know and we're seeing with this pandemic uh things can get out of whack and I'm sorry to say, of course, the pandemic saved the hash with regards to long-term care insurance when you have various, you know, yes, the reserves got released. That's a very euphemistic way of putting uh, some of the policyholders died. Um, yeah, you don't, once the policyholder is gone, you don't have to hold reserves for them anymore, do you now? In any case, moving on. So let's look at what ASOP 56, which is on modeling, says. So actuarial standard of practice number 56, which is modeling, was uh, adopted in 2019, and the effective date was October 1st, 2020. So it's been in effect only three years. And it wasn't in effect when uh, this whole GE long-term care insurance thing went down. It was being worked on at the time, in fact. So the modeling ASOP definitely touches upon pretty much all actuarial work, more or less. Most of what actuaries do involves model. And so what's interesting is you know, it starts out with, you know, what's the purpose and all of that. So the purpose, the actuarial standard of practice, provides guidance to actuaries when performing actuarial services with respect to designing, developing, selecting, modifying, using, reviewing, or evaluating models. Um, so I'm just going to skip over the scope and all of that. But the definitions section, section two, which is where the definitions usually come from, we have 2.1, which is assumption. And that's where they went wrong, of course. So they had an assumption that had been set like 14 years before, set it and forget it, um, set and not checked for 14 years. So this is an assumption, a type of explicit input to a model that is derived from data, represents possibilities based on professional judgment, or may be prescribed by law or by others. When derived from data, an assumption may be statistical, financial, economic, mathematical, or scientific in nature, and may be described as a parameter. 
So that's just the definition. Um, now, that relativity factor that they had developed between the good plan and the bad plan may have been just a big-ass assumption, as I would call it. It may not have been derived on any data at all. It may have been derived on data that was current 14 years ago, uh, 14 years prior to 2018, I should say. Um, but, you know, moving on, they have issues about governance and controls. This is just the, the definition. So this gives you an idea of the kinds of things that they're looking at. Input, intended purpose, intended user. What is a model anyway? And there were a lot of discussions on what is a model. Just because it's in a spreadsheet, yeah, that was absolutely a model. Models can be simple. They can be very complex. Model risk. So here we go. And this is what I wanted to talk about because this was a model risk. 2.9 model risk. The risk of adverse consequences resulting from reliance on a model that does not adequately represent that which is being modeled or the risk of misuse or misinterpretation. And then the parameter is at the end, 2.13 parameter, a type of statistical, financial, economic, mathematical, or scientific value that is used as input to certain types of models. Examples of parameters include expected values and probability distributions and coefficients of formula variables. Some types of models, such as predictive or statistical models, produce estimates of parameters as output, which may be used as input to other models. So, you know, it goes through a lot of the different aspects of models that you're trying to deal with. So model meeting the intended purpose. So uh, this is section three, analysis of issues and recommended practices. Um, model meeting the intended purpose, designing, developing, or modifying the model, you know, selecting, reviewing, or evaluating the model. So this is some of the stuff. It's very high level in terms of it's not telling you exactly what to do. You have to confirm the model in the, in the actuary's professional judgment reasonably meets the intended purpose. When you use the model, the actuary should make reasonable efforts to confirm the model structure data, assumptions, governance and controls, and model testing and output validation are consistent with the intended purpose. You're doing valuation. And this is a block of business that this is, as I mentioned, tens of billions of dollars. What kind of governance and controls do you have on this model? They really didn't review it for 14 years. It didn't start out at, you know, $16 billion. It grew over time, but there was a point at which it passed $1 billion. Don't you think they should have put some controls in and some review? This is, again, going back to my example of when I was doing financial reporting, I had different thresholds. The whole block of business was, again, in the billions. And when we had various validation steps and different things, there were different model runs. And I had actually multiple inputs for valuation for reporting. I had some very simplistic valuation models for some really, really old blocks of business that were essentially nothing 
in total, you know, less than a million dollars in reserves, which was like nothing. Actually, it wasn't even a million dollars in reserves, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars. I did not care because that was totally swamped by the billions upon billions of certain blocks of business. The ones that were very large, those were the ones that got most scrutiny. Uh, the ones that were industrial life insurance, where pretty much all the policyholders were probably dead, but I couldn't track anything, any information down. The information uh, quality was very poor. I did not care because the size was not large on that block of business. So you have the governance and controls, the models that were appropriate to the specific business at hand. Okay, so this is talking, yes, this is very actuarial, but this is also true for other, yeah, I'm gonna bring it back to COVID, ha, 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 But this is true for all sorts of modeling problems. The governance and controls on the models, this ASOP 56, and you know, I'm like the evangelist of actuarial standards. No, and not all of them. A lot of the actuarial standards are very specific to actuarial work. It only applies to actuaries. Non-actuaries need not look at these ASOPs. But that is not true of ASOP 56. It is not true of ASOP 23. And it's not true of ASOP 41, which I'm not going to be talking about today. But ASOP 56 on modeling is something most of these items, modelers, serious modelers should look at. They should be taking a look and saying, hmm, you know, if I want to build a reputation, or if I want to take some good responsibility for models that are being used for very important purposes, perhaps I should make a checklist for myself of going like, okay, if this is a COVID model where I am predicting that, you know, this intervention does this and this intervention does that, and we're all going to take this model very, very seriously, perhaps I should have a structure that is not spaghetti coded and cannot be shared with anybody. Because that's a governance and controls thing and there's a model structure problem. And then maybe I have a data problem, right? And maybe I might have an input validation problem or an output validation problem. I just happen to remember some models coming from the UK with a person in charge who had behavioral issues that came into question himself, that that called his whole modeling operation into question, that his model was a complete mess. And that is true for, this is why there's a lot of quote, superstar modelers I am not particularly impressed with. If you just have pretty graphs, but you know, I don't see what the structure of your model is. I don't know what your inputs are. I mean, why just, you're just going to say, trust me. Why should I trust you? I have seen such trash modeling coming out of the pandemic for the last three years 
Um, no, I do not trust anybody just because they say, trust me. This is why I put my spreadsheets at the bottom of every post where the spreadsheets are relevant. I'm not even doing models in most of these cases. In f most of the time, I'm just doing some nice graphs based on actual data and doing some aggregations to make it easier for people to look at. I'm not even doing a model. Um, most of the modeling I do is for my day job that they pay me for. Um, but it's, you know, if I'm doing a model, I am, <laughs> I am capturing and documenting my assumptions. I'm trying to make sure things are not hard coded because things move around as time goes on. So yeah, using the model, model structure, you know, whether the structure of the model using judgments reflective of the model is appropriate for the intended purpose. Yeah, I'm going to blow my own horn and go back to where I sliced uh, Mr. Nate Silver a new one. And let me, ex people may have misunderstood what I was doing in those because I didn't necessarily disagree with him with regards to a simple model. It's fine to use a simple model to try to capture the effect of vaccinations. I was saying the data he was using as his input was in, not, not incorrect. It wasn't appropriate for what he was trying to show. And he also poorly documented where he got his data and he didn't share his data in a way that was easy for other people to use. I mean, I'm really, I'm really used to doing model critiques. I got started on it very early on in high school when I was doing an applied math class. And that's where I really got hooked with the applied math bug. Um, there were two possible paths. I got hooked on physics from my uh, teacher, Dr. Kalina, who was a total gas. Um, unfortunately, he died a few years ago, um, but he was great. He was the best teacher. Uh, he taught me how to do problem solving, and I really learned how to do problem solving from Dr. Kalina. But then there was Mr. Teague, who's now Dr. Teague, uh, and he taught, and I took several math classes from him, but one of the math classes was like a math modeling class. And I learned, it. you know, there's a lot of discrete math in it, but it was a different kind of problem solving. And it's where you don't necessarily get an exact answer. Um, and, you know, trying different approaches. I, I did a, a problem. One of my projects, my final project for that class was trying to determine power under a certain metric on uh, the electoral college. But I don't think I got past the election of 1828 because it got combinatorially, uh, well, very complex. And I think I estimated the runtime on the program I had would go over a thousand years uh, given the approach I was taking. But anyway, I learned how to critique models at that point, And it wasn't too far off other than the governance and controls part. So I didn't really know about governance and controls then, but I did know about model structure, assumptions, how to test models in various ways, and that sort of thing. So when I got to freshman year in college, yes, I was majoring in physics. I added a major in math as well, but I took a seminar 
in uh, math modeling. And what we actually were doing was a project for the professor who was teaching the seminar, which was okay. He was taking a model for CITES, which had to do with endangered species. It was a consortium. Okay, so what it was were there, Japan and Cuba wanted to go back to sea turtle fishing and just just wait don't overreact nothing came of this because as our professor said when we were freaking out over working on this paper he says don't worry nothing is writing on your analysis basically no one is going to read what you wrote um i mean this was my first taste of reality it's like no one's going to uh, read what you wrote it's all political um, the decision has already been made that no, they're not going to be allowed to do this. However, it would be nice to have a nice academic analysis to show why they're full of shit, essentially, and they were. Um, and so we had a grand old time pulling apart their model, which was supposed to show that their sea turtle fishery would be glorious and growing the sea turtle population and yada yada. Um, and it was totally bogus. It had bogus data and we realized that the data were fraudulent and we demonstrated how we knew the data were fraudulent. That was fun. Um, they used a model to produce the data and the model was in the paper itself. So it, and it was obvious that the Japanese and Cuban researchers, neither of them, none of them, I should say, there was more than two, uh, were native English speakers because there were all sorts of solecisms, as they call it. There were all sorts of errors in the English in the paper. Um, that wasn't a problem. We did not critique the grammar. We did not care. Uh, that's not what it was about anyway. Uh, but there were all sorts of improperly used models, bad population models for purpose. They took a fish model to try to apply it to turtles in terms of life cycle and it wasn't appropriate. Um, so it was quite the exercise in critiquing appropriateness of use of model. And we didn't have to, because of the exercise for that one, we did not have to uh, propose a better model because we didn't feel like it. Versus the Nate Silver post I did was basically, what is he trying to do? Oh, I see. Well, I can get better data, which was true. Um, I don't see why I need percent of population over age 65. I can find the population over age 65 and get their death rate directly from CDC Wonder. That was bizarre. The vaccination rate over the over age 65 was right there on the source he linked to why he did this rigmarole of all this other stuff. And I could do a simple, I could do a simple model and I got a much better fit than his weirdo model in many ways. So yeah, it was just very strange, uh, his choices. Um, but part of it could be, he did not know where to get better data. And I did. So that's, pretty much why I took the approach I did. The, the point is simple models are okay. Uh, and in general, simpler models can be better. However, you need to test 
how well they are behaving against reality if you're making very important decisions. And if your decision is how much money do we need to hold as an insurance company? Is it supposed to be $16 billion or $32 billion? Those are substantial sums. Perhaps one should be testing one's assumptions more often. This is not just an, that's obviously an actuarial thing. That is an actuarial task, setting reserves for insurance. But there are models being used right now and being developed right now by, quote, data scientists and other people who basically have no professional standards. I am recommending they get some, okay? If you are modeling and it's something important, you need to test your models. And if you need, hey, some standards and some things you should consider, I recommend looking at what the actuaries have done with ASOP 56 modeling. It doesn't tell you how to test. It doesn't tell you what governance structure you need to put in or controls. There's a lot of people out there who can help you. We're telling you the kinds of things that you might need to think about. Issues with your input, range of assumptions, consistency, you know, whether the runs, the outputs that come out are consistent, appropriateness of your input, reasonableness of the model and the aggregate. Some of these are specific to the kinds of things that actuaries do. But a lot of these are very general for people who are modeling in general. And it also has issues here, and this is because it's very specific to what actuaries have to do. If we have to rely on data or rely on models that are given by other people, well, that's because we have to communicate that information to other key decision makers and that we have to tell people, you know, what are the strengths and limitations of these models? What are the sensitivities and dependencies within the models? We cannot just unthinkingly, oh, here is this model on a platter. Thank you very much. And then go on our merry way. We have to understand how the models work. We have to understand how the models break. Okay. Otherwise we're not worth our very expensive price tag. <laughs> so this is my recommendation for all you modelers out there or people who want to build models or work with models, get some standards and look at ours. There's other, you know, groups that might have standards out there. I don't know. I like ours as actuaries. So that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. Talk to y'all later. Mm -hmm.